Welcome, everybody, to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast for operators by operators. This is Vignesh, a partner at Sierra Ventures. Thanks, Vignesh. And this is Arvind, a partner at Geodesic Capital. And we are super excited. Today, we have Glenn Tillman. Glenn, thanks for being on this. It's been a while since our last interaction, but I fondly remember our time on Livango Days from 2017 onwards. The first section of this podcast is really a diving a bit into the guests background and how they've come to be in the space that they are in so with that as preamble you've been a successful entrepreneur and operator but could you go back a bit in time perhaps into formative years that kind of shaped your trajectory as a professional well i grew up in a family of six i'm the youngest of six my salesmanship came from my father and my entrepreneur instincts came from my mother. I grew up in New Jersey primarily, and she would let me as an eight, nine-year-old travel into New York City to try to sell leather goods that I made. So that was one piece of it. And the other piece was there was a strong emphasis on giving back. So in the Jewish faith, that's called tikkun olam, repairing the world. So we grew up saying it's not about what you get, it's about what you give. And giving back was always a strong emphasis. And then as I went to college and spent some time abroad in England, going to school as well at Oxford, and then came out and started working in a variety of industries and migrated pretty quickly into the healthcare space and found a space that I loved. I mean, healthcare was a way to make a difference. It was a set of problems that was enormous, frankly, the largest set of problems in the world today, maybe other than climate. Um, and so it made a lot of sense. So that's a little bit about my kind of formative movement in that space. There was also a personal element. And that was my youngest son, Sam, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was eight. He's now uh, much older, he's doing well, and uh, using a lot of technology that I'm proud to say our philanthropic efforts and our work with JDRF helped spur things like the continuous glucose monitor and what's referred to as the artificial pancreas, the closed loop system, as well as lower cost insulin, all things we've been very, very involved in. But seeing how hard we made it for people with diabetes and other chronic conditions to stay healthy, I just knew there was a better way. And that in part led to Livongo. Thanks for that, Glenn. When did you kind of feel that you want to continue treading down the path of healthcare, especially given we all know healthcare is not for the faint-hearted and, and you're not onto your first, you're onto your third company, or maybe I'm missing some in between, but these are the ones that I know. Mm -hmm. Those are the biggest ones. And we've been fortunate through both investing and supporting entrepreneurs to be involved in a lot of the healthcare space. In our fund, Seven Wire Ventures, we have 19 companies now that we've been involved with and have invested in support. And then through our family office, we do additional companies, some of which are international. India is a particular market of interest for us now. But I think a turning point that I can identify came after I had done my first IPO, and it was a healthcare company called Enterprise Systems, and it was focused on the resource management space, helping hospitals operate more effectively. So we had done the IPO. I was feeling pretty good. My alma mater, a little school in Pennsylvania called Bucknell, called and said, would you like to come back and talk about being an entrepreneur? 
When I went to Bucknell, I was a scholarship student. I was probably the poorest kid or one of the poorest kids on campus. And I always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And so I thought this was a great opportunity to go back. The first indication that it was different than what I expected was I was introduced by someone and he gave me his card. And believe it or not, it said director of large gifts. So at that point, I knew that there was at least a second reason they had asked me to come back. It wasn't about being an entrepreneur. But then I went to a wonderful mentor of mine, a professor. I went to his house for dinner. He said, how do you think you're doing? And I said, I think I'm doing pretty well. And he was quiet. And so I said, well, why? And he said, well, you know, we didn't educate you to make money. We educated you to make a difference. I don't think you're doing very well at all. And it was a real kind of gut-wrenching time. And I went back. And then not long thereafter, my niece was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And I said, you know what? Maybe this is a sign I'll get involved. And I got involved. And two years later, my son was diagnosed. Then I really doubled down on this sense of this is where I want to spend the rest of my life and my time focused on how we solve the most challenging and the most important problem that we have. Because if you're not healthy, nothing else matters. And so that's what we're focused on. We have a unique problem, particularly in America, but now it's a worldwide problem. And that is, we have the best doctors, nurses, therapists, we have the best facilities, the best technology. And yet, we rank something like ninth in the ability to keep our population, our entire population healthy. And that's a big part of what we're focused on. How can we put people back in charge of their care? How can we focus on what we call the informed, connected health consumer, making people more informed about their care, making them more connected? And last but not least, how can we treat them not as patients, but as consumers? Because we're consumers all the time. We're patients when we get sick. And we have to focus on how we keep people healthy first and foremost. So that's a big part of the focus, but I think that was a turning point. I've been lucky to have great mentors, and along the way, they told me some things that I didn't always like to hear, but fortunately, I was smart enough to say, they're not trying to criticize me, they're trying to help me get better, and that's always the attitude we've taken, which is, yeah, give people solid feedback. I forget who said it, but... They said, throw hard objects, not sharp objects. And I always say, look, if Michael Jordan needed a coach, I could probably use one too. That's super interesting, Glenn. And there are a bunch of things in there that we're going to come back to. But I actually want to talk about building startups because you have an interesting journey going from Allscripts then to Livongo. And I'd love to hear what your learnings were. What were the things that you took away from Allscripts uh, that helped you as you got Livongo off the ground? There's a great Harvard Business School case about all scripts, and it starts with a quote from me that says, I didn't know there was such thing as a Series J preferred. For our listeners, what happens is you go out and you start a company and you get your initial seed investors. And then you go out and you convince people to put more money in and you say, you're going to be more preferred than everybody else. You are Series A preferred. So then you run out of that money. And you go to another group, maybe the same group, and you say, now your Series B preferred. You're more preferred than those initial investors in Series A. 
And then you do series C. Well, you can imagine when you get to J, you have a lot of unhappy people and you've lost a lot of money. And that's when I arrived at this company called Allscripts. And it was a little misguided. It had 50 employees. The first day I got there, they said, how much do you know about payroll? And I assumed they meant payroll systems. They meant making the payroll. So we let 45 of the 50 people go. And we started over and we refocused what was a medication repacking business to electronic healthcare. And that's where we pivoted to electronic prescribing, ultimately becoming the largest electronic prescribing company in the world. That gave us a flavor for we could use technology to really make a difference. And to rewind the clock, remember that those were the days when physicians they used a pad, they wrote prescriptions, and we used to joke about their bad handwriting. But what wasn't a joke was the Institute of Medicine published a report that said that each year, 7,000 Americans die from preventable medication errors, like handwriting errors, drug interactions, and the like. And today, no one jokes about that anymore. Why? Because most prescriptions are electronic. We check for all that. We do drug to drug, drug to weight, drug to pregnancy. All of those checks are automatically done. So that's a problem that we were able to demonstrate we could solve using technology. Now, prying those paper pads out of physicians' hands wasn't easy. And that also taught us a lot about how you get people to change. And that was very useful because once we had the physicians using a handheld device, they started to say, can I dictate into this device? Can I do my billing through this device? And pretty soon we became what we used to joke as and call a stealth electronic health record. At that time, we called it an electronic medical record. Then we actually changed the name to electronic health record. But we got into it the opposite way that everybody else got into it. We didn't go top down which is why Epic and other EHRs today simply don't work well. We started bottom up. So everything we did was invented by the users. And that's why they used it. And that's why we wrote literally hundreds of millions of electronic prescriptions. And we knew that we were saving lives by doing that. So that was a good entree into understanding how you use technology. Now, Allscripts grew into a big public company. I took it public. We did a secondary. We were public. We rode the curve up and then in 99 down. So a stock that was at its peak, I think $89 dropped to $2 and uh, all the way down. I thought I was smarter in the market. And I said, gosh, when it's 69, I'll buy some. When it's 49, I'll buy more. What a great deal. When it's 29, I'll buy more. When it's 15, I'll take a second mortgage on my house to buy more. When it hit two, I was in serious trouble. And we spent years and we rebuilt the company. And the company was always a great company, but the market was very different then. And so we survived that. We ended up acquiring companies during that downturn and built it up and became the largest outside the four walls of the hospital, the largest electronic health record company with more than 50,000 offices using, and almost three quarters of all the physicians in America were using some kind of Allscript software. When I left there, I decided to, hey, I'm going to start over 
that's a bit of a shock. And I always say to entrepreneurs, you don't get to start at top where you ended. And it's very hard. So, you know, fortunately, having done that a number of times, I knew what I was getting into, but that doesn't make it easier. That just means you know what's coming. So it's kind of like running a marathon. It doesn't make it easier, but you kind of know that when you hit mile 18, uh, you're going to get through it. First time, you don't know. Thanks again, Glenn, for that. Maybe if I can sort of give a bit of a preamble for the audience here. You wrote the 2009 Hitech Act, which made it easier for EMR adoption. Obviously, also became a formidable player there. But Livong, you probably saw something that probably made chronic diseases, comorbidities, uh, head-on challenge to be taken. Of course, uh, there's some personal experience here. Looking back, would you classify Livonga as being a success in achieving the ambitions that you had set out for? I think Livonga was a magical company. Everybody was a winner out of the transaction. The members were winners. They were healthier. Our clients were winners. They had happier employees and families and lower costs, which is kind of magical. We were very big on giving back to the communities that surround us. We were very big at taking care of our employees. And then last but not least, our investors. So we always go member clients, our own employees who deliver those services, the community that we operate in, and last but not least, our investors. Part of what some people don't even know is at Livongo, we created something called the Living on the Go Foundation and gave away more than $25 million to health charities around the country. We did it quietly. We did it with an independent board. We didn't want credit for it. We just wanted to do the right thing. And we have a similar foundation at Transparent that we're building. And so I think you can be a great company. You can take care of your members. You can take care of your clients, your own people, serve the community, and deliver great returns for your investors. And that's what all of us should aspire to. It's not what all companies do, particularly in healthcare. And remember, I'm a capitalist, so I have no issue with making profit. But if you're not serving your customer, and if you're denying thousands of claims and doing things like that, not delivering people a great product, then you really got to question what your motives are and what kind of company you're building. I think that's a really amazing anecdote, Glenn. I think a lot of times people tend to forget that the patient is ultimately the person that really needs to be the one that wins in order for a great outcome to happen. My partnership is a couple of us do healthcare and then the rest of us do enterprise software. We're talking about what the company does. And the feedback was, it sounds like the company is just trying to perpetuate the system, not really helping anybody. And sometimes when you get so deep in healthcare and especially healthcare software, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of the uh, forest for the trees. And you try to find things that make processes better, but don't really make the system better. And I think it's really important to keep that perspective in mind. The flip side of it is it's really hard. Even a Livongo-like journey is really hard. I mean, diabetes management in theory should be easy. But there's something to be said for timing and how to use technology. And it felt like you guys got the timing of it really down, right? Everybody was buying iPhones. There were just this big wave of mm -hmm. devices that were coming on the market. It's so important to capture all those trends and get the timing of these things right and really thread the needle on timing. And you guys seem to have done it perfectly with Livongo. What advice would you give to other founders as they try to keep both the patient experience but also threading the needle on the market timing, right? So when I'm wearing my investor hat and we look at companies, we always ask two questions. One of ourselves, and that is, is this company just perpetuating the status quo? 
or is it adding something truly unique and different that's going to make things better? And that's where we invest. We don't do the first, even if we think it can be profitable, it's just not what we do at Seven Wire. So when the second question is one we ask the entrepreneur and we say, what's your exit strategy? And in almost all cases, if they have one, we don't invest. If you would have asked me, what's my exit strategy at Livongo? I did have one. Well, when diabetes gets cured, I'll be out of a job. That was my exit strategy. Other than that, my focus is to take care of every person with diabetes and keep them healthy and let them live their life and not worry about their diabetes. And if you look at some of the companies we have, the entrepreneurs in many cases have had that experience, whether it's chronic pain, OCD, and on and on. And these are people who've lived that experience and don't want other people to live it. They're passionate. And if you say, what's your exit plan? Is I'm going to do this until we solve the problem. So that's kind of point one, which is just the kind of people we're looking for and the passion of solving the problem. You mentioned devices and there were a lot of devices coming out and that was helpful. But when I think of Lavongo, I think of the other way you described it, the other word you used, and that is experience. You open the box. It was unlike anything that anybody had ever seen in diabetes. And then instantly when you started using it, it was charged and you turned it on. It welcomed you by name. And it was like people with diabetes were used to really bad plastic supplies. And the case itself was, you know, a different case and it had zippers to store the various supplies. And so everything about it was engineered to create a different experience. Now, having said that, that is table stakes for building a great company. The other piece you need is timing. But if you look at when great companies get built, many of them were built during tough times and downturns. You know, people talk about, well, you had the pandemic. Pandemic did not fuel Lavango's growth. Lavango was already growing. It did fuel, if you were a telehealth provider, yes. But Lavango was on this curve already, simply because people love the experience. Now, when if you want to talk about timing of our exit, yes. We happened to hit the market at the perfect time. And that wasn't by accident. That's a judgment call. We did some things internally. We had some cleanup to do. And I went to the board and said, it's going to cost us a million dollars to do this cleanup to get public a month sooner. And people said, well, what's a month? Do we really need to spend the million? I said, yeah, we really need to spend the million. And we spent it. And let me tell you, that million <laughs> was worth billions of dollars. So timing is really important. But before you worry about timing, you have to worry about one, do you have a great company? And that starts with great people. Two, do you have a great experience? I didn't say product, I said experience, because that's what the most valuable companies provide today. The other thing is what you can't time, people say, well, we're going to take it public in two years. Really? Like, who says that? Not anybody who's smart, because you can be ready to go public. But like, would you take a company public right now? I wouldn't. You know, markets are choppy. There's a lot of uncertainty. What you need to do is build a great company that you love to be at, that your people love to be at. Our goal at Transcaren, and I've said to everybody, I want this to be the best place you've ever worked. And if you go and ask people at Lavongo, 
almost all of them will say, that was the best place that I've ever worked. Now, sadly, some of them say, I'm worried it might be the best place I ever work. That's unfortunate because it's hard to find companies that really are focused on this. But that's what we are focused on, creating that same experience here where every day for every person we're focused on how do we optimize their performance. There's one nugget in there that I really, really, really like and I want to follow on. Um, Wait, only one? Only one? (laughs) It's all nuggets, but one in particular I want to (laughs) highlight, I should say, Uh, which is really about culture. And especially in tough times, you said you can build great companies in tough times. I mean, it's hard to build a place that's the best place to work for, or best place to work at when times are tough, especially with what we've seen in the last few, called last half a year to a year with all the layoffs and things like that that have happened in the tech world. And I'm curious, how do you manage to build a great culture, especially when times are tough? One, it's gotten harder. And it used to be easier when everybody was in one or two or three places. Now, at Livongo, we always had, even pre-pandemic, about a third of our people working from home or outside the main offices. And we created something that was called the remote culture. And literally they had pajamas, they had special chairs you could order. And so even pre-pandemic, we're focused on how do we make them feel a part of things? And then, you know, internally, of course, being in the office, it was easier. Today, we have to be smarter about it. So we have to be more intentional and more thoughtful. If you want to get people to come back in the office, why? That's one question to ask. If I'm just doing a podcast, I could do it from home. You can work from anywhere. So if you bring people into the office, we think of it less as an office as a meeting place. This is kind of more like a campus, a meeting place. You want to go there because you're going to find great people. You're going to find great resources. It's easy to meet there. It's a central place. There's food, all those things that why do we go to places? And so you've got to create that, but you just have to be really thoughtful. What do you want to do? How do you want to celebrate things? We're just introducing a brand new technology that's really amazing called In Common. And what it does is when somebody comes on, It goes through all the information, if you have a LinkedIn, if you have a resume, and then it puts that into a database. And then it links you to other people in the company that have the same interests. And so let's say you come on in day one, and we now have more than 400 people at Transparent. And in common, we'll say to you, there's five people who like to run, and you're a runner. And so I'm connecting you with those people, but I'm also telling those people, hey, a new runner join. Maybe uh, you play pickleball. Well, there's a pickleball club. Did you know about that? Maybe you went to school in Singapore. Well, there's three other people who went to school in Singapore. All of a sudden, you have all these links, and it feels not like a place to go and work, but it feels like a family. Now you feel at home, and people reach out and say, oh, by the way, we're getting together, or we're having a discussion on this, and it breaks down those barriers that it might take you years to figure out. Second, we have activities that we do. This past weekend, we had more than 80 of our people decide to ride in a charity ride for juvenile diabetes research. 80 people, just over 70 actually rode. Some rode 100 miles. 
a big chunk rode 100 miles. A lot of them rode 50 miles. It didn't matter. You were part of it. And 10 of them volunteered. They were at rest stops. They were at safety stops. And everybody who was there felt a part of something. We had people who it was an emotional experience. They said, I never thought in my life I could do something like this. So creating those opportunities to connect, to build a community that just makes you better. And then I'm riding next to all kinds of people. Our chief marketing officer, she was there. Our chief medical officer, he was there riding. So now all of a sudden you have all kinds of people who now know you. People walking around saying, I spent three hours with Glenn on Sunday or on Saturday, you know, because we were there for kind of the whole weekend. So I think you've got to intentionally look for opportunities to build. The second thing you have to do is, look, our people believe in our mission. And that is really important. It's the best thing about healthcare is people commit. That's a really important advantage that we have. But you then have to really live that. You can't be halfway. And all of our people at Transparent use Transparent. So this is kind of like, hey, my family's using this. Am I going to cut corners? No. Am I going to accept something that's lower quality? No. Our CFO just had some back issues and she went through our process. She had a whole long list of ways to improve it. She was not a happy camper. And she said, gosh, um, I'm glad this happened to me because I found about 10 different things we ought to be doing differently. And the operating people were like, great. Now give us the budget to do those things. So it was a great exchange back and forth. Glenn, I think you mentioned uh, amongst the many nuggets, the one key nugget is how these sort of compress the perceived maybe hierarchy in the organization and, and finding opportunities to do that. I think that's one thing that probably listeners could take away. But there are two other topics I wanted to cover. I mean, just given the scaling of different companies and one of the critical ones is hiring, leadership. And most importantly, if it's a venture-backed company, board construction. I fondly remember my time affiliated with the board. Everyone felt welcome. It was open discussion. And also for Livong, just the scaling of it, and probably now with Transparent, getting everything right in hiring, like the, the sales, the partnerships, the finance, the clinical aspects. What advice would you give? It looks magical from outside in, but what advice would you give to listeners? First and foremost, hiring is tough and you have to have people who are coming for the right reasons. So I can tell you that if you come to work at one of our companies, we're never the highest bidder. We want people who are coming because they believe in the company. And I think our salaries are competitive, but people come because they believe in the company and they know they're going to share in the stock upside, but that could be a long time. So first and foremost, hire people who love your mission and love your vision and who want to be a part of it. Second, hire people who you like and you respect. I truly think of everybody here like, you know, I like them and love to meet their families. I do meet their families. They know my family. And so we want people who are good people and who have the right values. And that's a big part of what we hire for. Probably most important is the persistence and the work ethic, because this is hard work and changing an industry is tough. If somebody's not a fit, you don't have to vilify them, help them. In a lot of cases, we've doubled people's severance on the way out. We don't have to, but you know, it's tough when things don't work out, just acknowledge it and say, 
hey, this may not be the right fit for you. It's not the right fit for us. Let us help you get to a place. And guess what? Some of those people go to places and they become our customers. Other people, a year later, we hire them back. Are they come back? Sometimes they leave and then they come back. Our CFO today, when she was at Lavongo and we were making a CFO transition, and her name is Stephanie Peng. And so she left the company. She took another CFO role. And then we brought in Lee Shapiro, my longtime business partner and partner at Seven Wire. He became the CFO. And she looked at it and she said, you know, I could learn a lot from Lee. I'm going to leave a CFO role and go back and take a junior role to be a part of that. Imagine doing that. She was already CFO of a venture-funded company. The bravery and the vision that she had. So she came back and in one year, we did the IPO, a secondary, a $500 million convertible and an $18.5 billion sale. She was a part of all that. She got her MBA. She got every designation you could get in 12 months. Now she can go anywhere and do anything. She looked around. She had a ton of offers. And she decided to come here because she had another chance. It wasn't the highest pay. It wasn't the biggest company. None of that. She wanted to recreate that magic. And it's great advice to everybody, which is don't take the biggest title, the most pay. Think about what's going to be best for your career. And that's one of the many things I admire about her. So again, be thoughtful. All this is about outthinking. How do you create that experience? And if you can't create it for your own employees, how are you going to create it for your customers? Thanks for that, Glenn. You know, what advice to listeners would you give about scaling? I mean, there are different stages. There's early stage. There is when you're like having that hockey stick growth and then, you know, positioning yourself for eventuality to be on public, et cetera. Any key lessons that people should walk away with? Well, I think that in each stage, you really have to understand what you need. So, for example, many companies go public. The only reason you should go public is if you're ready to go public. And that means, do you have the resources? Because that takes a lot of time to manage in a public environment. That's a different group of people that you might have at a Series B. So you have to be willing to make sure that the company is growing as you scale. And that starts with your leaders. Those are tough decisions. And that's one thing that you have to be prepared to make. And we see this in all our companies. Sometimes you outgrow people that have been so critical to the founding of the company. Sometimes you can put them in a role where they can still stay and contribute, but other times you can't. And sometimes they don't want that role. And that's the toughest part of scaling. The other thing I'd say is, as CEO, I believe in the companies we like where CEOs are very active. As you mentioned earlier, we don't like lots of level, lots of organization. I like all of my team to be out with our clients, interacting, hands-on. That's important to our culture. It's not for everybody, but that's what we do. So, you know, what kind of people are you hiring and do they share those same kind of values? You build a team. So, you know, I'm not the strongest in finance. I needed to build a team to where everybody on the team can play their role. So I needed to have a CFO that I could absolutely trust. There are technology founders and the like 
who don't want to be out presenting, that's okay. Find a partner who does and let her or let him be the face of the company. And that's fine too. One of the strongest competitive advantages that a company can have today, and I pride ourselves as having, is we pivot very quickly. So today, speed is a weapon. And when it's not working, make a mistake, learn from it, and then pivot to something else. You can spend a year building a product and somebody else has got to market six months before you. And yeah, maybe it wasn't perfect. So they modified it, but they're getting real-time feedback of people using it versus somebody else who's in the lab doing it. Now, I will say you've got to be careful. One of my co-founders and investors at Lavango, Hemantanasia, wrote an article called The Era of Move Fast and Break Things is Over. It was about Mark Zuckerberg saying at Facebook, what we do is move fast and break things. And in healthcare, you can't do that. So you need to be able to move fast, but move in a very deliberate, careful manner so you don't break things because the things, the product, are people. And we can't afford to do that. So there's a balance. But it's important to really be nimble, learn quickly, and move quickly. Well, thanks for that, Glenn. I think you're still keeping within the go-to-market strategies in healthcare. The end customer, I mean, the people, especially in, say, if you're selling to uh, providers or self-insured employers, might be interested in clinical evidence, right? Are there certain timing of it to sort of think about when you need to have the right clinical evidence to support your arguments, uh, what kind of partnerships you need to roll out? Well, first of all, you, you mentioned go-to-market. So our go-to-market has always been through large and mid-sized self-insurers, primarily. We like that because you have a lot of decision-makers and they are the ones paying the bills. They're the ones getting the complaints from their employees. So we like, that's our, in almost all of our companies. That said, the difference between that and direct-to-consumer is that direct-to-consumer can be really expensive. If you go through large self-insured employers and mid-sized self-insured employers, the beauty of that is that you then get aggregates of people, big groups of people. We might get 10,000 or 50,000 people with one sale, and that's really important. In terms of clinical evidence, I think depending on the product, that can be very important, but that also weighs off against the experience. At, at a place like Livongo, the experience was so much better that people wanted to have that experience. Those people making those decisions weren't necessarily as keen initially on clinical experience because it took a year or two to generate it. But they knew that the actual experience of how they felt was better. Then we were able to demonstrate that we also made them healthier, and that was helpful. So each product is a little different. You can't always wait for clinical experience in healthcare. Yeah. You got one, you got to get users to get clinical experience, right? So you have to have people using it, but you always ought to be assessing. We all measure what's important and you ought to be measuring what are the results from a clinical standpoint, from a financial standpoint, and do they make sense? And that's really important, particularly in healthcare. Well, thanks for that. There's a segment in our podcast, which we call decompress. That's one of the Ds. And you know, this is where... We let our guests give their feedback in, in that context. Now, when would you know, Glenn, that you're 
done with your mission your mission of changing healthcare bit by bit i think you kind of gave a bit of a hint at the start but you know why don't we come back to it well you know my objective is to make sure that every american and ultimately people across the world have access to healthcare i think healthcare is a right having said that i don't think that means the government ought to always be providing it i think we need to make it easy to access high quality affordable care that's it happens to be our mission at transparent and will be done when that's available everybody has a shortage of physicians and other skilled healthcare professionals so i think the whole chat gpt ai revolution is going to do wonders for our ability to provide better information to people both in the US and across the world. That's the objective. I don't plan on stopping. I have no retirement plan. I surely have no plan to exit transparent until we have accomplished that mission. And that's a big mission, but you know, what else am I going to do for the rest of my life? What nuggets would you share with fellow founders and even investors? How do we charge? Because to me, we are in this constant treadmill of life as work. So how do you sort of find your silence, if I may? Well, first and foremost, I love what I do. So, you know, we take having fun seriously. That doesn't mean that we don't run into challenges, but we don't focus on them. The opportunity we all have to work in this environment, to make a difference. To me, that's energizing in itself. So that's number one. Number two the people that I work with, I respect these people. They're smart, they're active, they're doing important work and they're just good people. And I mean, they're fun. So to me, that's energizing. I don't ever come to work. I just have a chance to all day long do things I like to do with people I like to do it with. And then the second piece of that is our family foundation and the opportunity to give back. We've made a commitment to give away all of the money and so we're doing that through a variety of charitable efforts that we make. Why would you not want to, when you have the opportunity to make somebody's life better, why would you not want to do that? And to me, that is just the best thing in the world, whether it's our own people giving them opportunities to eventually run their own businesses or get to the top of their career, to make sure their families are taken care of, and then give them the opportunity to reach out. We have a program where each month people present their favorite charities. The company votes on them. Everybody gets some money, $5,000, $2,500, to give to their charity. All they have to do is stand up and present it. People say, how does that advance the business? Really? Because we're in the healthcare space. We're in the space of supporting our people and making it better. So I'm just energized about our business, about our people, about the opportunity to solve some of these big problems that we have. And then, of course, I exercise. I mentioned the 100-mile ride that we did with the company. Um, but, you know, staying active is important. And that's another important part of staying healthy. So we encourage all our people to do that. And every day, that's how I assess, did I move the ball forward today for individuals, for the company, for our community, for the country? All those are what energizes me. Well, Glenn, I'm sure I speak for the listeners here, but thank you so much for your time. There were many nuggets, I must say, and 
I'm, I'm pretty sure that the listeners would find it helpful and inspiring in their journey. So thank you again for taking the time. Well, thank you. And thank you for making the, the decision to invest in Livongo. It was an important one. And thank you for your service on that board. It worked out for both of us. Appreciate all your help and guidance. And thanks for spending time today. I hope this was valuable for all of your listeners. Thanks, Glenn. Have a good day. Thank you. Take care.